You're listening to Are You Happy Business Podcast on Captivate. Hello, Are You Happy Podcast. I'm here with Justin Nope. Thank you so much for being on. I'm very excited to chat with you. You have a long history in teaching languages. You've taught languages for 15 years now. Um, started with English and then actually started to teach languages, languages that you didn't even know um, by teaching people how to learn. And you take that same philosophy of teaching people how to learn into the business that you have now. Um, and it's called neuro resilience. You've been doing this for four years now, um, coaching business leaders. And I guess the thread behind both of the things that you do is that you've realized that emotions are the problem when people are learning, trying to learn a new skill or lead a business. Um, so without further ado, would you mind introducing yourself and a little bit about your background and how you got here to starting neuro resilience? Sure. Yeah. No, thanks for having me on as well. Um, so, uh, I grew up in South Africa and Johannesburg and, uh, it was kind of a weird upbringing. And by the time I was 20, uh, I had, uh, two suicide attempts behind me where I was just really, really unhappy and, you know, depression and all that kind of stuff. And I took a chance to leave South Africa when I was, uh, 20 years old, just after that second attempt, I was like, this isn't working for me. Something's not working let me leave. And I left and I went to London and I spent the next like 15 years on and off in London. I spent a year in Argentina, a year in Indonesia, a year in France and a year in Thailand and bouncing back and forth and figuring stuff out for myself. And that's also like learning the whole time as well, you know, teaching languages the whole time. So I could actually afford the travel, you know, a hundred bucks in my pocket and my backpack on my back. And that, that was like my mission to kind of do all this stuff. And, um, during that time, I was, I was, you know, looking at like, well, how do people kind of make sense of the world? And I kept going to the traditional models like religion and philosophy and things. And I was finding that it wasn't quite sitting well. And as soon as I was like, let me take an evidence-based approach. Let me wipe the slate clean and just see what happens. And so this is what I did with language learning. This is what I did with humans in general. And coming back to this idea of like, we are social animals. We are, you know, so I made three rules that I call the human operating system. Number one is no person is an island, right? We're social. Number two is emotions trump logic all the time, right? We're emotional animals before anything else, before any kind of rationality. And then number three is context is king, which is to say that even when you apply your logic to something, you can't generalize rules. There's always nuance to look at. So whenever people give me like a, you know, black or white type of thinking, it, it shows me that they're thinking more out of a state of emotions rather than nuance. There's context to everything. And as soon as I started applying that to my life, it changed. And so that built my approach to, to learning as well and, and teaching people how to learn. It's like, well, what does the brain do? So we come up with, uh, you know, how to challenge the brain to hold multiple pieces of information. And it turns out to be very similar to taking yourself to the gym and exercising your muscles. So I don't talk about your brain is like this. It's more like, oh, this particular muscle hasn't been trained. So don't expect to walk into the gym and pick up the heaviest weight possible straight away. You know, go into the gym, manage your load, see what your limits are, see what's comfortable. And we want to push to a place where you're confident, but a little bit uncomfortable. You're, you're pushing yourself. You can feel you're edging to your limits and then just come in again and come in again. And the regularity, the consistency, language learning, uh, emotional regulation, whatever it is, it all works according to these principles of treating the brain from a social, then an emotional, then a cognitive approach. 
uh, and overloading it just like it were was you know a muscle. And uh, yeah, that's that's basically the approach that I take with anything now. It's a universal. It doesn't seem like it's connected because you know you're talking about learning a language versus helping someone with depression, but it, it turns out to be very much load management and having the right approach. Um, in the beginning of your answer, you talked about philosophy and how that didn't really sit right with you and you kind of took an evidence-based approach. Yeah. Um, I, I've had a similar experience reading a couple of reading in on different philosophies. Honestly, it caused me to overthink more than anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what is your, what is your take? Is there a certain philosophy that you think is valuable and implementable or did you kind of just learn this all on your own? And thirdly, do you have anything that you've written based on what you've learned? Um, good questions. Um, is there a philosophy about implementation that I can recommend to anyone? Not really. I think the best is, um, what I've found that really works is, is this, this concept of, uh, like, uh, evidence-based behaviorism. You know, this type of psychology called behaviorism, which is look at the behavior first. So, you know, if someone says, oh, I always do this, you know, well, let's track that person's behavior and you can form your expectations around that. And you can see how much the person either lies to themselves or lies, lies to others, or they're being true to what they said. And so it's never trusting necessarily what people say, but rather what they do and why they're trying to do it. And, and you know, you take that evidence and that's a very strong kind of way to approach things as this is what is. So I never go for idealism. I always go for perhaps the closest to it would be stoicism would be the most practical way to think about it. But stoicism also has this halo of I'm an unfeeling machine. So I, I never quite, you know, gravitated towards it, you know, cause I like, um, yeah, the closest to it would probably be the broaden and build theory by Dr. Barbara Fredrickson. That's like a theory that I would recommend that people look into. It's a very yeah. good one. What was it? Do- how do you spell it? The doctor, Dr. What? Barbara Fredrickson. It's like, f- yeah, F-E-R-D. Frederick. Yeah. Fredrickson. Awesome. Yeah. That's, I'm going to look into that. Cause I also resonated most with stoicism and mm-hmm. I started to it. And then I realized I hadn't expressed anger in like two years. <laughs> so I was like, because I told myself that I'm, that's what stoicism was teaching me to not express anger. And I saw the benefits of it because once you express extreme anger, like verbally loudly one time, I think like it becomes like an addictive habit or like you do yeah. it the next day, the next day and the next day. But I didn't, it took me time to realize that there is value in like expressing anger in a composed way, mm-hmm. um, showing that you have, you're frustrated with someone or something in a firm way. You don't necessarily have to lose your temper. Oh, um, so I confuse like stoicism teaching not to express too much anger with, I confuse it with like, um, like not like having it, you shouldn't be able to express your discontent in a tempered manner. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I like, I'm, I like where, where your head's at and the broad and build theory is definitely something I'm going to look into, mm. um, back, uh, in history for you, when you had your, like, two suicide attempts. What did you learn after that? That was there a breaking point where you learned something emotionally about how things happened for you 
um, that sort of like North Star, how you've been going about life now and teaching people? Yeah, there, there was, um, the, the basic premise is that I was creating a, re, uh, a reality, a perception of reality in my mind that I was a tortured genius who was, you know, underappreciated and blah, 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 blah. And it was incredible how strong that was. But if you look at what, what does the evidence show for people between the ages of 10 and 25 is it's always about how much value you can bring to the group. You, you create your social identity, your social psychology really kicks in in those times. And I was trying to create value out of something that I thought was cool as well. And so generating that, I always perceived people to, to, you know, basically be against me and push me down. And I realized how much I was living by this script, um, of basically, oh, he got pushed down and then he worked hard and he overcame the problem. And so I was always looking in my reality for feedback where people were pushing me down. So I was actively trying to sense people pushing me down. Once, once I had kind of like seen myself doing this, like, what am I looking for? Um, that took me a long time to figure that out as well. And that basically means that nowadays I, I've, I haven't suffered, um, from depression in years, mainly because I always look for things and I realize in knowing myself, what, what makes me happy? What do I enjoy? What are things that light me up? What are the commonalities? What's the Venn diagram? You know, what are these common traits? Cool. Let me go and explore those. And let me go and explore things that I have no idea about and find ways to connect with it based on what I enjoy as well. And the result of it now is that like the world seems like a buffet full of interesting things. And, you know, that type of approach of examining perception where I'm trying to create value and instead throw that all away and let me try and find value. I like that approach. I definitely could see where you're coming from. Yeah, totally. Like you found, you've built, I've, I've heard people say this before where they've built like, but they've realized what makes them happy, all these mm -hmm. specific like behaviors that lead to happiness and then try to create more and more of those situations. And it's funny that the way, when you started your answer, you said, um, you were looking at yourself as a tortured genius. <laughs> And in my most depressive moments in my past, I had the same exact mm. um, perspective. I thought I was so smart and gifted and um, a lot of the knowledge that I had, I wanted to keep it to myself. Um, mm -hmm. So I just started to internalize everything. And mm -hmm. I just felt like I was smarter than everyone and nobody saw what I saw, but <laughs> there, was, there was a, yeah, there's obviously a breaking point at some time where it started to shift, but um, I, I also see where you're coming from in terms of like, and in those times you are, you were, and as, as, as was I like noticing things that were negative and like things mm -hmm. that break me down. And it really is about choosing those positive experiences. Um, but I think something that you may be implied, but something that I utilized in those really, really down times was to, um, put myself in situations where I'm like uncomfortable, where like mm -hmm. something brand new that I've never yeah. done before. Um, actually the big breaking point for me, now that I remember what that got me out of it is I ran a half marathon untrained. Mm -hmm. I just like, I was in habits where I just want to be at home, uh, sleeping in, 
And I was like, you know what? Half marathon, let's do it. And from that, I realized the value in putting my th- myself through uncomfortable experiences that I've never been through before. Because mm-hmm. it challenges your brain to think in ways that you've never thought of before. Um, and that's exactly what you need when you're depressed. You need one, 100%. Yeah. If you can predict, if you can predict what you're going to go through, it's not going to be a growth for you. And if you can put yourself in a situation where you have absolutely no prediction, like you, you don't know, it's a, it's a very big unknown. It forces you to map that territory out and mapping that territory out one time, two times, three times, you're just going to get more dialed in as you go. And then cool. It's a new territory time to find a new territory to map out as well. So yeah, I totally hear that. And I think that this is, this lends credence to this idea. You mentioned it earlier on about like anger. And now you just mentioned like discomfort as well. And one of the interesting things is this idea of like, how can you be happy and put yourself in those cases? So most people, like when they feel anger, their judgments of allowing themselves to feel anger or, you know, noticing themselves feeling anger is usually like criticism. Like you shouldn't be angry. Like, what are you doing? And being happy with being angry and just being like, anger is a natural expression. Yeah. I'm freaking out right now and I didn't do it in the best way, but that's an opportunity for me to really put in effort and rebuild this relationship or really put in effort to, you know, like clear up the situation. And it gives me an opportunity to be humble and it gives me, you know, and that type of thing. And being excited by that as well, as well as allowing yourself to just be that thing, because there is purpose there without a doubt. Yes, you can change it and moderate it and become more refined, but there's always a purpose and getting uncomfortable now, especially like I said earlier on load management, you know, if you've got the capacity to do it. So I always make sure my clients do this as well. Are you at a place where you are ready to take on more load? So just a very simple thing. Are you at a minus one, a zero or a plus one? And when I say minus one, you need rest, recovery, release from stress. Okay, cool. Let's put you in a nice like cotton bowl room and just, you know, chill out for a while you know, rest, recover. If you're at a zero, you're at that point where you've rested, recovered, but you don't have extra energy yet. And if you are at a plus one, and that's where like all of these morning habits of like meditation and make sure you're working out on a regular day, drink plenty of water. They're trying to get you this plus one state. But if you're at a plus one state, you can't just chill out there. You have to then introduce controlled stress into your life where you're like, okay, cool. I'm really, um, you know, if you won the lottery, most people would just buy all the cool stuff so that they wouldn't have to leave their house, that every, every comfort would be there. But happiness doesn't necessarily stem from comfort. It comes from the harmony that we have of being capable, confident, meaning to society and others. And so there's always these social relationships that govern it as well. And if you're always inside in a comfortable state, you'll never get there. So controlled stresses is always uh, something that I promote within anything and a controlled stress, especially in places where you feel there is no confidence or there is no, uh, let's say agency. You don't feel capable. You don't feel strong. You feel like you need others, that you're somehow dependable. And just regardless of whether you are supported by others in your real life, you go to those areas anyway, so you can feel like, oh, I'm, I do have some control. I do have some power here. And that really helps to change the game. What is an example of like, I can imagine what it looks like, but what is like a really concrete example of controlled stress? So say someone is in that plus one state, they're healthy. Um, what is a, an example of controlled stress? Is it just anything that causes 
that person to feel stressed and then just, it's just a challenge for them to um, deal with it. Yeah. And, and so I usually tend to, cause I, I am not necessarily a health coach. I do, I do, you know, challenge people to do healthy things, you know, like work out their physical body and eat and whatever. But I would say that the biggest controlled stress that I can give people is usually an emotional stress as in like, let's say someone's not comfortable with putting up uh, boundaries and limitations, saying no, or refusing a request or something like that, or expressing their, um, their preference. Like, I want to go to this restaurant instead of that restaurant. You know, what you'll find is that the most stressful times for them is when they have to say no to something, but they can't because it, it would probably cost the relationship and getting them to say, okay, cool. What is a controlled stress here? What's, well, I don't really care about, um, you know, expressing my preference or fighting for my choice when it comes to like, where should we go for dinner? And then I would challenge them and say, you need to practice reps here. This is, this is where you should be doing your controlled stress with something that you think doesn't matter, but you still are forced to express a preference, you know, because wow. it is difficult for you to do the, the result is just you exercising that muscle. And then when you step into a place where it really matters, you know, so then you're going to be a lot stronger for it. So a good metaphor to think about is competition versus training. You know, you don't necessarily go, let's say if you're running a marathon, you don't run a marathon every day in order to train for a marathon. You know, you will have a training program and that training program, you're going to notice and monitor and measure and all that kind of stuff. Those are controlled stresses. So on competition day, you can take yourself to that limit of where you've been you know, with confidence as well. Very awesome. I'm starting to understand the philosophy. Um, and I have one more piece of this philosophy that you're sharing that I'm a little bit curious about because there's controlled stresses, but then there's also stresses that come in that are random, uncontrolled, maybe a death in the family, or mm. uh, maybe all of a sudden you spiral into a depression. What is the, um, is the philosophy of introducing controlled stresses um, is a philosophy that, okay, you're at a plus one state right now. You're doing really well. Um, you seem okay, but let's introduce things that let's introduce some stress so that you can grow as an individual and, and learn how to respond to things that might be stressful. So that maybe when something comes up, that's a big deal. That's a little bit uncontrolled uh, an external circumstance. You have all these controlled stresses that you've um, dealt with and, you learned all this stress management. So now you have a better, you can take a better crack at this new uncontrolled stress that's coming in. 100%, 100%. So think about it kind of like if you go to gym and you train like every, every kind of muscle in every possible way, you know, especially knowing what you're weak with and you know, what you're not strong with and creating some kind of standards for yourself, then I can put you into like a half marathon, but I can also put you into an obstacle course race, but I could also put you in like a, street workout competition. And even though you're not going to be the best, you're going to be confident, comfortable. And so you've got this idea that you, you trust yourself enough to go into multiple situations. Maybe I could, maybe not competitions, but I could ask you, Hey, do you want to go running this morning? And you would say, yes. And Hey, do you want to go hiking this morning? Sure. Do you want to go swimming in the ocean? Sure. No problem. Like there is nothing that you don't trust your body, um, with, you know, you basically you have a strong sense of confidence and trust and agency responsibility in your body. Now, if we apply that to your emotional body, 
It's the same thing. You know what's going to trigger you. You know how far you can take yourself as well. And you know also how to bring yourself back from that brink. And you've also had practice not judging yourself. So in cases of like extreme stress, let's say losing a job, losing a loved one, you know, things like that. Um, it's basically a chance to lean on those muscles and let those muscles carry you, number one. But number two is eventually getting to this place where you see these as opportunities to actually bring your uh, group of people closer. And remember the primary operating system inside the brain or inside our entire meat machine, let's say, is we are social. It's that simple. We are social. This is the number one thing that I find that other people get wrong. You know, if you're talking about psychology, social psychology, you know, you need to make sure that you're getting your social nutrition, your social needs need to be met and how we meet those needs. And most people aren't even aware of what social needs are. You know, things like you want to feel like you belong to a community that you want to participate in as well, you know? And it's not just I'm part of a community or I'm not. It's there's multiple like levels to this and distances, let's say. So yes, I belong to my neighborhood community, but I don't need to feel like I know I need to know everybody's name or anything like that. Like, no, but if I'm walking down, I like to get a wave from people or something like that. Like an acknowledgement that, oh, you are part of this community. I'm part of this community. We recognize each other. You know, those are social needs. And a lot of the time if there's a death in the family it can, it can do wonderful things as a consequence. That death is terrible, but people bond during traumatic events, mm. right? And so it can bring you a lot closer. How many times have bad events actually helped you to bond further with the people that matter to you? That's true. I've had one experience, not a death, but like someone getting severely injured and it brought me and my siblings closer to each other. 100%. Um, yeah. I definitely see that. And yeah, I found that in my most stressful times, you're right. Like the two things that get me out of it are um, uncomfortable experiences like I shared, but also uh, surrounding myself with people. Just to mm. challenge my brain to think in these new pathways um, where it's not so internal and, and like isolating focused, but more mm. so like let's talk to people, let's open my mind up to these new possibilities, new ways of thinking. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, my question is, what does... What exactly does it look like when you're telling someone to introduce uh, controlled stress? Um, because there's obviously many different areas for improvement for everyone and mm. possible totally. controlled stresses. Um, and for me personally, as I'm, as we're talking, I, I think of, I could think of one as an example, if you want to use this example, I think for me, a uh, good controlled stress would be like when someone is, uh, when I have a conflict with someone and maybe they're raising their voice, how can I, express my um all like my discontent by all with also like so say we have a uh, an argument with someone like afterwards that ability to just have a controlled conversation and be calm and address it and have that like that confrontation piece so like mm -hmm. a lot of the times i'll get an argument and then it's over but it doesn't the argument's over but mentally i'm still thinking about it sure so how do i how do i come in afterwards and um and like uh, come in a controlled manner and a peaceful manner and like express the things that are still in my head. Um, I think that's an example for me. So like, I guess using that example, how exactly would I move forward? Would I write down, okay, this is my next controlled stress. Let me work on this whenever it comes. Sure. Up. Um, okay. So 
starting off, the first thing that, that you would do is, um, so I run people through an assessment to find out which of like nine personality types they are. I just use this assessment because it seems to be like the most accurate. I have no real attachment to it. But without doing that assessment, the simple point is finding out, first and foremost, are you acting out of a, um, basically what's called a reflex response, something that's trained into you from childhood. So for example, um, if you are a thinking type, so everything that you've told me today tells me that you're very much a thinking type, not a feeling type or not an instinctual type, but a a thinking type and more to the point, collecting knowledge and things like that. So you are this investigative type as well, you know? And so what that means is that you're probably in your head, like, um, you've got a couple of safety security needs that get triggered and the the way that you get around that is by being, you know, this thinking type, collecting knowledge, you know, and what probably triggers you in social situations is this idea of this person's arguing with me, but they don't know this information. They're being incompetent right now with their logic, with their thinking. Let me, let me, you know, say the things that they need to know in order to actually see my opinion so they can have an educated disagreement if that you know, so how true is that? Would you say so far? Very true. Yeah, I just um, reflecting on something that happened yesterday. I don't have arguments often, but yeah, it's very true. It's like the person did not recognize um, a piece that existed. Right. Yeah. And and this is the thing is that of these nine types, three are thinking types, three are feeling types, three are instinctual or would be called body types. And there's so many nuances as well. So I would first identify where you are. And you can identify where you are by just making sure that, well, what triggers me and what doesn't trigger me? And understanding that the way that you're you're thinking, we need to then identify, are you leaning into that behavior because of a way of proving your worth or feeling okay? Like, I'm only going to be okay if I can close that argument, close that loop, if I can make that person see my way. And if that's true, then understand that you're you're basing it out of um, what, what I call the uh, like the the first you know uh, the first software version one, you know, Dibron version one, right? And we upgrade to like version two in um, our teenage years, and then version three is going to be the adult like software update, shall we say? And that adult software update will recognize. Wait a minute, this person's triggering me. And basically it's calling into question my worth and I will only feel okay if I prove my worth. And if there's something that you need to do to feel okay, then that's basically understanding that we're coming from a place of uh, instinctual reflex to show worth, to prove worth. Why do we do that? Well, we want to be able to do that so that we're not banished from the tribe. We show value, we show worth so that we're valued by the tribe and we won't get banished and we will live, right? So it's always got to do with what are you trying to do socially, you know? And after that, now the controlled stress is in this particular case, identifying the buttons that are going to be pushed for you to behave like that, right? Awareness comes first. So if, if I were you, I would be, um, in controlled stresses. Uh, I wouldn't be there yet. What I would be doing is doing awareness with you because there are four steps, awareness, then acceptance, and then ownership and then choice. And when we get to that fourth, the third and fourth place of ownership and, and, uh, choice, that's when it would be doing that type of thing. 
perhaps even in your case. And so this is not for everyone. It's, it depends. That's why I only work one-on-one with people. I don't work with groups because you can't do this with everyone. You are, you know, a very different person from the next person. So controlled stress from what you shared with me without doing any further assessments, you know, disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer is going to be based on this idea that why don't you get into arguments with people that you, at some point you just say, you know what, you're right. You know, even though you're, you, you understand that they are wrong, but challenging that part of yourself that needs to, let's say, show value by demonstrating how much you know, or demonstrating that they've got the wrong end of the stick or something like that, you know? And so what would it look like to choose a different behavior, but you can't force yourself there. Just like you can't with stoicism, you were saying you force yourself not to be angry or take control. You need to first be aware of what's going on inside you. And then you need to um, look at your judgments of what's going on inside you and actually learn to love each part that does come up naturally. But understand that that had a purpose and it doesn't need to in future have a purpose or currently have a purpose. Like it's, it's a part of you that learned to protect you that you're still activating, just like uh, brushing your teeth with one hand. You could teach yourself to brush your teeth with the other hand. It'll feel weird in the beginning, but after 10 years, it'll become automatic. And so right now, the automatic behavior that's coming out of you is childhood or teenager. And that's what I deal with, with most business people. They can't believe how much they get triggered into childhood. So let me ask you that question. When you were having this argument yesterday and you felt yourself kind of getting angry and frustrated with this argument, right? Had you experienced that type of frustration and whatever before in your life, like when you were a child, when you were a teenager? So if I asked you to put an age to how old did you feel in that moment, what would you say? Yeah, you're right. Totally like 12. It's like that frustration when you're in puberty and you're like, you know, it's not, it's not like that. <laughs> I don't know. Like I don't have these experiences often. It's not like a trend. Um, mm. I usually, I think I need to, um, you're right. Build that muscle of being like, you are right. Um, that like, um, I feel like once you build that muscle of like conceding, <laughs> um, it's not about, like it's not about winning the argument at all. Yeah. I think, yeah. I think ideally I want to be at a place where I can like speak my piece and like that could, that should be enough for me. Cause obviously you for can't sure. close the loop on every argument and just make them see your side. Yes. There's always something else that you want to express. That exactly. Yeah. Um, so you need to have the internal peace no matter what. Um, so there's a couple of muscles here, by the way, one of them is conceding to the argument, but another one is perhaps um, like finding your own value. Um, and I, I always encourage people to explore this. How am I valued by other people? That's not in a way of information, data arguments. So that a person can raise an argument with you and you just be like, I don't even need to put my argument forward. Like I don't, I don't feel the need to do this because it's not going to raise my value because my value is, is that I'm appreciated for my kindness. I'm appreciated for my big heart. I'm appreciated for my curiosity, not the fact that I'm right. The fact that I'm competent with this knowledge, you know? So like, how are you? And these are three questions that I get everyone to answer. How are you valuable by just being you? Like, what is it that you, you are just you, no one else is around you. What, what would you, uh, what would you say are things that you just naturally will gravitate towards that other people can value, right? That's number one. Number two is what are things that you do that have no connection to intelligence or knowledge or arguments or whatever, no connection to anything 
um, that's triggered in these types of arguments that other people value, that they say that they value. And the third one is your relationship, your connection to others. What are connections to others that are valuable, uh, valuable to them that you are valued for? So for example, you are a son, a brother, uh, a lover, uh, a friend or whatever, and they don't need you to be this intelligent person who can win arguments. They don't need you to do that. They need you to be in their lives and that's it. And it's effortless a being. So what does an effortlessly valuable Dibran look like? What are the qualities of effortlessly valuable Dibran, right? And taking it from there, now we've, we've got our own sense of value, which means that when someone triggers the, the kind of argument fight, you're, there's a lot less fight back in you because you don't have the self-defense mechanism anymore because you can see your own value. And growing your own value over time is about how do we take ownership of all the shameful, maybe scary things that, that we've been exposed to in the past and integrate them and own them as part of our personality. And actually, this is how we perform value to others. So for example, my two suicides are part of my story and it's valuable. And other people can appreciate that value because then it demonstrates perhaps how we're connected or traumatic events that perhaps I've got insights from or something like that. It's got nothing to do with intelligence. It's got to do with actual suffering, let's say. But likewise, my travel, it's got nothing to do with intelligence. It's got to do with I traveled and people are like interested in travel. And so just that relationship there provides value. And I realized that my history is valuable. My effortlessly being is valuable. And that's something to source value out of as well. Wow. So it's noticing in those arguments or whatever stress that that has nothing to do with your value, like proving yourself right, nothing to do with your value. There's people out there that love you for who you are, despite whether you win this argument on the other side of the world. Right. <laughs> uh, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's constantly bringing yourself back to that, uh, how you're valuable, but like personality wise, how, like by being you, like what, how are you valuable in that sense? But also like, um, what are the connections you have with other exactly. individuals? Exactly. Um, yeah. I always think about that, like in situations like where I'm at now in this new city, um, it's harder to make friends, but I'm always thinking like, okay, I have friends back home that love me for being me and like know who I am fully. Exactly. Exactly. Me and they see the value. So, um, yeah, I, my last question to you, is how do you take this uh your philosophies to the business world and how you're uh with the consulting that you're doing um what yeah. are, what are, what's maybe a common uh, occurrence that maybe ceos and leaders have um, uh, yeah it's a, it's a great question um it's really scary taking these philosophies to the, to the business world because you're like they're going to eat me alive or something like that and then you get there and you realize that people are people it's that simple. People are people and they're just trying to apply this in a business context. And what I keep finding is that um, the, the general trend with everyone is that they just want to fulfill their potential. And they realize that they're enacting their same kind of like patterns again and again and again. They want to get out of those patterns, but they don't know how. And, you know, so it's all connected and it all brings them back together. And then a couple of, a couple of weeks of working with someone and they're so open and vulnerable and you can see some great changes and things that you would have never, like, you know, you've got an idea of how you could help them and, and how they would grow out of it. And they totally like take a, a 
you know, a complete fork in the road and they just start flying on their own. And you're like, holy cow, that's something I would have never predicted and never kind of like, you know, tried to decide for you or something like that. And they're just so lit up. And I talk about the aligned self, like all the parts of yourself are basically aligned, like your anger, your development, your your growth, your like everything is just lined up. And it just feels like there's nothing that you can do to take a wrong step. And everything is like really something that you're capable, confident, you know, you can see it all. And that type of thing is very interesting, you know? Um, so it's, it's really aligned. So, yeah. Since everything's aligned, once you, once you saw like maybe like a CEO, once they solve like their issues with um, reacting angrily, like then other things start to open up for them because everything's huge. aligned. Like, huge, huge, huge. Taking away from like their energy in day-to-day life. Exactly. That stress. The, you know, I've, I've got like three clients that had particularly the anger issue in dealing with. And one of the greatest things was helping them with that, where they realized that the person that they were fighting was actually the answer to their problems. And they were like, oh, and, you know, as soon as they got out of their anger and their need to kind of dominate and influence the environment, because that's what was like their kind of core reflex response for dealing with safety and value. As soon as they got out of that and they saw the situation, they're like, wait a minute, I wanted someone who was strong enough to be able to do this. This person is strong enough to be able to do this. Holy crap, this is the exact solution that I'm looking for. And as soon as they figured that out, it was game changing for them. And they and they changed their communication and they changed their their management style from aggressive to very supportive. And all of a sudden, like the team started like really rallying behind them as well. So, you know, there's, there's huge kind of um, implications in terms of leadership and success for business when people actually um, go for this social grouping, this idea that together we are stronger than just our individual parts put together. Wow. That's incredible. Uh, so the solution is actually in the person that was maybe causing anger for them. Okay. Exactly. So the last question for you um, is right now where you're at. Are you happy? Uh, yes, in general, absolutely. And even when I'm not, uh, I'm happy that I'm not because it's always an opportunity for something, to, for some muscle. So thankfully, I'm able to see that. So if I'm practicing Brazilian jiu-jitsu and someone's got me in a some kind of chokehold and cranking me out, I'm usually smiling on the inside saying like, I can't wait to get home and dissect this and kind of figure this out so that I can come back stronger. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate your time. and um. Can't wait for this one to come out so I can listen to it again. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you. It's been my pleasure.